Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 20, through to Genesis, chapter 23, verse 20. 22, 20 to 23, 20. Before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we pray, Father, that our hearts would be made willing and ready to receive your word for that which it is, the very words of God. Father, may we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and a meek and humble heart that is understanding and obedient. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 22.20 Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Camuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidleth, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maacah. Chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Abraham answered Abraham. Sorry, Ephron answered Abraham. My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Memre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Memre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. So we're told, obviously, the main point, starting at at, uh, verse 1 of chapter 23, is that Sarah dies. She came to the end of her days. And my friends, 
That's what happens to all of us. That's what happens to everyone. There are two exceptions in all of Scripture and they're exceptions. They were taken to heaven in chariots of fire. But for all of us, you're going to come to the day where you breathe your last, where body is separated from soul. Death is the inevitable outcome of life in this present evil age. It's what happens because of sin, both because of Adam's sin and because of our own sin. Sin brings us to the end of life. There's lots of, um, I would call it hyper-spiritual stuff around about when it comes to people dying. And what I mean by hyper-spiritual is there is sort of a, um, there is a way of thinking in which you have to pretend that nothing bad has happened and you don't get seen weeping or mourning publicly because it's as though this would be admitting some kind of defeat. Well, my friends, it is some kind of defeat. Remember, death did not come to our race other than through sin. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And it's actually in the Hebrew, it's literally die, die or dying, die. You will die. You will surely die. And it is a separation for all of us when we lose someone whom we love. And it is sad. Always remember that, and here's the what if part of the story, but sometimes the what if is worth thinking about. Always remember that if Adam had not fallen into sin, if they had not eaten of the tree, which was forbidden to them, it was God's plan that a son of God would be seated upon the throne at the right-hand side. In other words, In other words, Adam fell short of the glory of God. He did not come to that which was intended. Now, I say that, brackets closed, all things happen in the providence of God. I know that when God created, he knew that this was going to happen. This is actually his plan for all of creation, exactly that which has happened, including the fall into sin, because the purpose of creation is the revelation of the glory of God. That's the purpose, the ultimate purpose of creation. And God's glory is in some way revealed more clearly and with greater brightness through mankind falling into sin. We won't go any deeper than that, but that is God's purpose in all of creation. He knew what was going to happen. He knew it would happen. He knew when it would happen. Adam's death was not, Adam's sin, I'm sorry, was not a surprise to God. But back into our text, Sarah dies. Interestingly, ladies, I know you don't don't like to talk about your age, but interestingly, there's only one woman in all the Bible whose age was given. Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. You, You won't find, for any other woman in Scripture, you won't find that we're told how many years they walked the earth. But Sarah, we are told that. And in First Peter, as we read earlier, Sarah is given to us as an example for a, for a woman of spiritual maturity. So Sarah comes to the end of her life. But we started our reading at verse 20 of chapter 22. And there, that's where we should start our message, isn't it? There we're told that the relatives of Abraham, the family from which he had divided itself, had also been blessed by God in that it had many children. 
And we're told in brackets, or it's in brackets in my Bible at verse 23, that there was a young girl named Rebecca who was of this family line. What we're to see here is that all things happen in God's providence, that Abraham now has a son who is reaching marry, you know, the age of marriage, and that Abraham's relatives have children that are reaching the age of marriage. This is sort of just a reference. It's, it's to be set in the background. It's something that um, we're going to have to consider again next week if we're in Genesis chapter 24 next week as I'm planning. This is something that Abraham was made aware of. What we see here is that in God's providence, all things are being organised for both those who are in the promised land and those who are in the promises of God, those who live under covenantal blessing and those who do not. God has his providence. God has his plans. Abraham was made to know that God has his plans. It was told to Abraham, behold, your family, your, your distant family, your broader family, it is growing. Let's leave it at that. It's a, as I said, it's for future reference. And let's move on through chapter 23. We're given the life of Sarah and we're told that Sarah dies in the promised land. That's significant. She dies in the promised land. She dies in the expectation of God's promises. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham both mourns and then in verse 4 he acts in faith. There's, there's nothing to suggest that Abraham should not have mourned for the death of his wife. There's nothing to suggest that he was doing anything wrong in weeping at the loss of his loved one. Now, we as Christians have got all these promises. I am the resurrection and the life. You know, everyone who believes in me, though he die, he sh- though he die, he shall live from the Gospel of John. We cry when someone we love dies. We cry when someone we love departs from this world. Why? Well, for one, they have departed. You know, you get used to having certain people with you and around you, beside you in all that you do. You know, and there, there are certain people that when you, when you think of those people, you wonder if you could actually get through the things you have to do without them beside you. Because, well, even the disciples were sent out two by two. It's better to be with someone than to be alone. And so we mourn when someone dies. We mourn when someone dies because, as I've already said, this is indeed the result of sin. The soul is separated from the body because sin has corrupted the body. Flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul says. And another reason we mourn is, I think, though perhaps we're not quite conscious of it, The death of somebody is a stark reminder of that which happened to our Lord. He died. He really did die. He didn't go into some sort of semi-conscious trance state from which he was awakened at a convenient time later on. He died. You know, the Romans knew how to kill people. It's something that they were good at. And, And crucifixion with... With a, with a lance, which is a spear at the tip of a long shaft of wood pushed into a person's side all the way between the ribs in, into the very chest cavity, that brings about death. You know, it, it's not questionable. We're not wondering whether or not he died. 
He died. And he died because we sinned. He died because we sinned. And so when we see someone we love die, well, maybe maybe whether we're conscious of it or not, we're being reminded of something, and that is that someone we love has died. His name is Jesus. And he died because of our wickedness. But Sarah dies in the promised land and Abraham rose up from before he's dead and said to the Hittites, and we're down at verse 4 now of Genesis chapter 23. Notice he says it before the Hittites. What's the point? Witnesses. Abraham wants to enact now an official transaction. This, this, this transaction requires that it be witnessed, that many people know that this has been done. It's been done in public. It's been done in the open. Abraham wants a permanent transaction to be done. You know, what's a wedding ceremony? It, it's, it's entering into a covenant before many witnesses. They're all witnesses. I mean, they're here to rejoice. They're your wedding guests, etc., etc. But they're witnesses. The whole idea is they're seeing that a man and a woman are being bound exclusively one to another and that no one is to separate that binding that God has put together, that which God has put together, let not man pull apart. So at verse 4, Abraham politely commences the negotiations. Basically, he speaks to the Hittites and he makes no demand. He points out that he's not a citizen of amongst their people. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. He's saying, I have no rights to make any demands upon you. I'm not a citizen of this country. I'm not ruled over by you. I don't answer to your legal system. I'm a stranger and a sojourner. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of your sight. So what he's saying with extreme politeness is I have no right to ask for this, but what I want to do is I want to obtain land here in your land. I want to obtain land here in your land. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. And that's such such an interesting thing, and we, we've got to stop there. You are a prince of God among us. So these Hittites, who, apart from general revelation, don't have the word of God preached to them, don't have the same promises given to them that Abraham has, yet, my friends, there's something about Abraham that they recognise. They know that he's different. They know that he's not one of them. They know that his God is not one of their gods. They know that he's blessed. They know that he has standing. Somehow or other they know that to be an enemy of this man is to have God against you. Just turn quickly to Exodus chapter 33 verse 16. Moses interceding for the people of Israel after they had committed idolatry with the golden calves. And Moses is at this point pleading that God will remain in some way with his people. Verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, 
from every other people on the face of the earth. Consider what's being said. How shall it be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? My friends, we're not supposed to fit in. You know, this world is not our home. We're not supposed to fit in. We're not supposed to have our comfortable little place in the society around about us. We're supposed to be recognisably the people of God. We're supposed to be recognisably distinct from the people around about us. We're supposed to do things that make us not like the world around about us. We're supposed to do according to the commandments of God. I mean, I remember I, I had not been a Christian very long, one, two years. And I was talking to the pastor of the church that Lisa and I were attending at that time. And he said, what do you think Australia is going to become like? And I said, it's, I said, it's going to get worse and worse in a way. I, and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to you, but I don't think you realise just how ungodly my generation is and how far we're drifting away from the commandments of God. And I can't see that being turned around unless basically many thousands of us are converted. Those who do according to the commandments of God are going to become so different to those who do not that there's actually going to be no peace between us. And he was pretty, he was struck sort of quite thoughtful by that, that idea. Um, and that's the way it is, my friends. You know, if I ask you, what is a marriage? You're going to tell me, well, that's when God puts a man and a woman together and it's a forever relationship and it's not to be broken, except perhaps by sin, but that's only an exception. It's not to be the rule. It's a forever relationship. It's a relationship of covenant with God in its middle and it's a, it's a relationship between a man and a woman. And then if I ask you, what does the law of the land say a marriage is? Well, it means almost anything these days. Woman, woman, man, man. It won't be long and they'll make it uh, possible for marriage to be three people, four people, five people. Because after all, you know, they're recognising all the categories now. L, L, H, B, C, Q, T, plus whatever, on and on it goes. I can't even remember the, the, proper, uh, the proper running together of the letters now. It's just alphabet soup. Whatever you find is whatever it is. And amongst that group is uh, those who are attracted to more than one person. And they've got to be given the same recognition as everybody else and not to is discriminatory. You see, we define marriage differently to other people. They use the same word, but we use a different definition. Our definitions come from the word of God. Or how about the whole idea of transgender children? How did a nine-year-old know that he or she was born in the wrong body? For goodness sake. Honestly, how would they know that? Who's telling them that nonsense? You know, the question God asked Adam, who told you you were naked? You see, God knew that someone evil had been in there, that some evil being had actually told Adam and Eve something that they didn't need to know. Well, who told these kids that they've been born in the wrong body? Who told these kids that if you get yourself uh, cut down, get yourself reduced, who told these kids that if you do that, you can actually change? 
from male to female or female to male or to androgynous or whatever you want to be. You know, there's there's people here trained in science. If you're female, every cell in your body is female and no one's changing that DNA. And if you're male, every cell in your body is male and no one's changing that DNA. And so to do anything externally to try and deny the image in which you were created is actually an outright rebellion against God and a hatred of God's created order. People nodding their heads and saying he knows what he's talking about. He's right. But that's not the way the world defines things anymore. The New South Wales Teachers Union, was it, said something about it's time to start teaching preschool kids about transgender or something in the last week. Get your kids out of the system. If, 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 they're going to, if you're going to expose them to teachers, don't expose them to teachers that tell them those lies. It'll destroy them. It's as simple as that. We're distinct. And we're not distinct because we're just idiots. We're not distinct because we just, you know, we like being pariahs. We like being the jerks that stand out on the hill. If we're distinct for those reasons, they're the wrong reasons. We're distinct because God is with us and having God with us changes us. Christians march to the beat of a drum that the world cannot hear. We don't march to their drums, we march to God's drums. Christians are ruled over by something that the world does not understand and we're not to compromise that. And here's the thing, these Hittites, these pagans, idolaters, they've got a stranger and a sojourner amongst them. His name is Abraham. He's got a pretty big community round about him. Remember, he could raise up 300 fighting men at the snap of, fin- at the snap of a finger. There's something different about him. You're a prince of God among us. You're different. You're different. Therefore, we want to be very polite to you. And so bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Reading on, verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a property for a burying place. Now, once again, notice this incredible politeness. At this moment, though he knows the guy can hear what he's saying, he doesn't even dare to speak directly to him. He says to the people around about him, be my allies and speak to this guy, Ephraim, the son of Zohar. Speak to him on my behalf. I'd really like to buy this particular field. He had a spot in mind all along. Now Ephron, at verse 10, was sitting among the Hittites and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. So we just stop for a moment. It says particularly that this city is his city. Ephron the Hittite is therefore a significant man. Now city, the word translated as city, it basically just means a walled place. Okay, it, it could be a city of 200 people. Don't think 200,000 metropolis, 2 million metropolis. A walled place, a place where people can gather for protection. But this is his city, Ephron the Hittite, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. 
I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So now we've come to the serious negotiations. We've now got the owner of the land speaking to the purchaser of the land. Ephron is now speaking directly to Abraham. Abraham is going to speak directly to Ephron. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So there's a few questions and even, you know, the commentators and the scholars aren't 100% certain of the correct answers here. For example, a question, was this kind of negotiation, this extremely polite negotiation before you even come to a price, was this the cultural norm in that place in that day? It might have been. If anyone was trying to buy, would they have come to it in this way? It might have been. Or was this simple? So, sorry. So the point of that would be then that when Ephron says, you can have it for free, it's just talk. It's the polite way of talking, but everybody knew that sooner or later they were going to come to a price. You know, would Abraham have stepped outside of the norm, the cultural norm of his day, if he had said, beautiful, I've got it for free, thank you, I'll take, my, I'll take my wife and bury her now, see you later. That could possibly be the case. But that aside, a price was named and Abraham paid it. I think what Abraham wanted was land without encumbrance. Sometimes if you take a gift, what you're actually doing is you're accepting an ongoing commitment. Think of the king of Sodom. Abraham has rescued Lot and all of the citizens who were alive remaining from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had gone to war. He had rescued them. He brought them back to their homeland. And the king said, I'll give you all the spoil. Take it all. And Abraham said, no, I won't take it. I don't want you to be able to say that you made me wealthy. You see, in the offer of the gift, there was an unspoken commitment. And sometimes unspoken commitments are actually more heavy than spoken commitments. Sometimes when people say they're giving you something, they're not actually giving you something. They're trying to purchase your soul. And I realise that that is extreme. All right. The devil himself, when he says he's giving you something, he's trying to steal your soul. Nothing comes for free. But even amongst people, sometimes gifts come with strings attached. Ongoing alliance, ongoing friendship, ongoing commitment. Abraham says, no, I don't want that kind of relationship. I don't want that kind of relationship with you. If I take this land for free from you, it's a very significant thing. And it would seem to me that in the the future of my life, in an ongoing sense, both myself and my family who come after me are also committed to you. If we take this gift from you, we would be forced into an alliance with you. If there were daughters in my family, I would be expected to marry at least one of them off to one of your family. I would be uniting myself to you in a way that is not fitting. My friends... The presence of God makes us distinct. 
And we are to keep continue making decisions that keep us distinct. Do you get what I mean? We are not to take decisions that compromise us with the world around about us and bring us back into the world. If God has taken us out of the world, so to speak, we're to stay out of the world in the way that God has brought us out. The commandment to the Israelites was do not go back down to Egypt. The commandment to Christians is do not go back down to sin. Abraham chose not to be tied to this man Ephron with unspoken commitments. He chose not to have a worldly alliance. Once again, he chose to remain distinctly the man of God, distinctly the man with the promises, distinctly the man who was seeking a city that was not of the not from this earth, a city that came from above, a city that was not constructed by human hands, the city of God. And so there's not even argument. You know, once a price is named in the Middle East, you're expected to argue. You're expected to argue. I remember I, I once went into a, a, a phone shop. I needed a particular phone. If do you back in the days when mobile phones were fairly new. And you would get certain phones that were recommended for rural areas and certain phones that were recommended for metropolitan areas because out in the rural areas, you, you didn't necessarily have digital signal, you had analogue signal. And so out in the rural areas, you wanted a phone that could both interpret digital signal and analogue signal. And there were certain brands of phone that could do that. And I, being an interstate truck driver and driving all over the countryside... I needed a phone that was going to work wherever I could pick up any kind of signal at that time. I went into a place, I had a broken phone, I showed the guy, I said, mate, this phone's broken, I need a replacement. And he said, well, you, you've walked into the right shop, he said, and he opened his drawer. He said, I just happen to have one of these secondhand here. He said, it's working perfectly. Do you want to buy it? I said, sure, I'll buy that, that'd be great. You know, replace the broken one with one that's working. He said, name a price. I said, what? He said, name a price. Now I realised this, this guy wants to haggle. He wants to, he want, he wants to have the fun of haggling about this. So I said, 20 bucks. Oh, he said, 20 bucks? Come on, mate, it's worth $160 new. He said, I'll give it to you for 120 I said, oh, come on, mate, 120 for a phone? I don't even know how old it is or how long it's been used. 45 We haggle. In the end, I got the phone for $55. And he was really happy. He, he enjoyed the haggle. So normally, once the price was named, it's expected that Abraham would at this point begin the haggle. Oh, you say it's worth 400 but come on, it's a smallish field and it's a smallish cave and why should I pay $400? Uh, you know, 300 sounds reasonable, does it not? And they haggle, but no. Abraham pays the price asked. Without haggling, without argument, he pays the price asked. What does this tell us? In no way does he want Ephron to ever be able to say, you've got it because I gave it to you. He wants outright free and clear ownership. Why would that be important? Why would it be important? Well, remember, he's buying a little piece of the promised land. He's buying a little piece of the promised land and this little piece of the promised land, he's buying it not only for himself but for his family. Where was Jacob buried? We read earlier. 
Jacob had his body taken back to the promised land to be buried in the cave that Abraham had purchased. He wants ownership of this free and clear, even to the extent that he's probably paying too much for the land. Once again, the scholars aren't sure, no one's 100% sure, but it does seem that a field with a cave for 400 shekels of silver in the economy of those days, it does seem like a fairly expensive transaction. But he wants it free and clear, and he wants no comeback. He wants no one to be able to say, you've only got it because we gave it to you. He wants no encumbrance with the people of the land. And so he purchases it. He immediately agrees to the price. And then verses 17 to 20 give us what is the equivalent these days. We'd call it the title deed, although you can't get a title deed anymore. Do you know that? You can get a receipt. You can download and print a receipt from the government that shows that at some point in time you purchased this land. They've gone online with all of that. You know, the most important information has been secured by the government in their memory, in their uh, servers. No one would ever hack that, would they? That's as safe as houses, that is. Hang on, the houses are on the title deeds. Oh, anyway. (laughs) Anyway, the title deed. So the field of Ephron. In Machpelah, which was to the east of Memre, the field with the cave that is in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. So he gets the field, he gets the trees of the field, which means he gets the fruit of those trees, he gets the cave to do with as he pleases. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Memre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And we've come to the end of our portion. So what am I going to say to us in terms of things to think about and in terms of application? Look at verse 23, 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Memre. It doesn't say after this, Abraham got rid of the body. Abraham removed the corpse. It says he buried Sarah, his wife. We are actually embodied creations. Sometimes we like to think or we're sort of tempted into thinking that we're not body and soul, or we're not body, soul and spirit, but we are. That's the way God created us. When we die, body and soul are separated. Eternal life is not the soul or the spirit going off to heaven. I mean, we sung that song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And I like the song. If I didn't like it, we wouldn't have sung it. But if you look at the third verse, it says, just up in glory land will live eternally. Now, that's a little mistake. That is a little mistake that many Christians make because the scripture tells us that when the Lord Jesus himself returns to lay public claim to this earth, the saints who have died in Christ will come with him and their bodies will be resurrected from the grave. They will at that time receive a resurrected body that is for resurrection life upon a new heavens and a new earth. You're a person. God made you a person with a spirit and a body. You know, we enjoy things. We enjoy the feel of water on a hot summer's day. 
We enjoy the smell of a lamb roast. We enjoy the smell of an orchard in flower. We enjoy the taste of fruit straight from the tree. We enjoy companionship. We enjoy physical contact. God made us people who are embodied people. Our persons are to be attached to a body. It's hyper-spirituality and actually leading yourself to a dead end if you try to imagine that eternal life is a spirit floating around in the clouds with ethereal music playing in the background. You know, that to me doesn't sound like something to look forward to. But the scripture speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. And in the book of Revelation, that new earth is described in very similar terms to the way that the Garden of Eden was described in the first place. The Garden of Eden was a beautiful place to live with all the fruits and everything in it that was good for people. And it was in the very presence of God. Well, my friends, the new heavens and the new earth are described in similar terms, but more. There was one tree of life in the Garden of Eden. There are many trees of life in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to be embodied creatures as we were designed to be. Sarah's body was buried. Sarah was buried in the hope of what? In the hope of future resurrection, in the hope of eternal life in the city that is made without human hands, in the hope of life in the presence of our Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was resurrected, when he, when he was brought back to life, when he brought himself back to life, when the Holy Spirit brought him to life, because God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit brought Jesus to life. What did he do when he met with the disciples? Do you have any food? I'm a bit hungry. Could you give me something to eat? What is that, what is that proving to his disciples? You're dealing with a real person in a real body. Oh, sure, in my resurrected state, I can do things. It appears that he can appear in a room without anyone knowing that he was ever going to do it. John tells us particularly that the disciples were in a room and the doors were locked and the Lord appeared in their midst. He can do things that you and I cannot do. But it was a real body and he ate. And it was a real body. One of the women at the grave was able to hold him by the ankles so much so that he said, no, let go. It's not, it's not that time. It's not the right time for you to be clinging to my ankles. Let go. My friends, we're going to be people with a real body, a real life, living in a new heavens, under a new heavens, upon a new earth, a whole new creation for us to dwell in for all of eternity in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds interesting. That sounds interesting. Mountains to climb, rivers to swim in, trees to eat the fruit of, people to talk to, fellowship to have, living, loving, learning forever and ever in the presence of the Lord. Sarah was buried in the promised land in the hope of resurrection to the fulfilment of the promises. All of the promises. Sarah was buried in hope in the promised land with an eye to the future and to God's promises. The second thing that I want us to think about 
concerning what we've just read is that Abraham purchased this land and buried his wife in faith. But by his own efforts, he did not secure the promised land. He did this in faith. It was very important to him that the family burial place be within the promised land. It was very important to him that he had legal possession or legal ownership, as it were, of a portion of the promised land. But he didn't secure the promised land. In the end, he secured a burial place in the promised land. You see, our own works don't secure for us the promises of God. We can't do that. It's God himself who secures the place for us through Jesus Christ, his son. It's Jesus who's gone before us. We're going, if we are in Christ, to be with Jesus, which is better by far. For all our works, for all our kicking, for all our struggling, for all that we earn, for all the money that might pass through our hands, for all the money that we might keep in our hands, our bank accounts or our pockets, my friends, in the end, it's not worth much more than a grave. It's not worth much more than a grave. The new heavens and the new earth, that's where we're going. We can't buy it with our own efforts. We can't buy it with our own works. It's been purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who outlaid the blood, the blood that God required, the blood that cleanses us of our sins. He's the one that outlaid a perfectly righteous and holy life. I mentioned earlier, Adam fell short of the glory of God. He sinned. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not fall short of the glory of God. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father with the scepter in his hand. It means he rules. He rules over all the nations. He rules over all the peoples. He rules over all of creation. And in that creation, there is a place for you and I. In that creation, there is a place for you and I. And so we serve our God in the hope of fulfilment of future promises. We've got so much more than Abraham had. Abraham saw the Lord from afar. Through the Gospels, through the Scriptures, we've seen the Lord from up close. Yet even so, we're still waiting for future fulfilment. We're still waiting for everything to come to us everything that has been made over to us. Do we have title deeds? Well, if we are in Christ, we certainly do. You've got a portion of heaven set aside for you. Think of that, a portion of heaven set aside for you if we are in Christ. And if we are not in Christ, we have no such portion and we have no such title. Better to be a stranger and a sojourner in this land Better to be a citizen of a foreign land where all of our blessings are held for us and where nothing can be stolen from us than to fit into this world around us. And when we die, that's the end. My friends, we want to have a hold on the promised land because that's where our future is and that's what this life is, in a manner of speaking, all about. We're not fighting for the here and now. We're fighting for our life with the Lord Jesus throughout all of eternity. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you that our life is hidden in Christ on high, that he indeed has paid the price of our sins and that though we die, yet shall we live. 
We pray, Father, that we would live in the light of these promises, that we would remember that our destiny, our future, is to be with the Lord upon the new earth, under the new heavens, and there to dwell for all of eternity. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.